I want to share a short stanza from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses uh, attributed to the Buddha, very short uh, phrases or stanzas that capture the, the essence of the, the Buddhist teachings in the passages that we find in the Dhammapada exist elsewhere in the Pali Canon, but are uh, here almost in poetic form to be recited and memorized. Drinking the Dhamma, refreshed by the Dhamma, one sleeps at ease with clear awareness and calm. In the Dhamma revealed by the Noble Ones, the wise person always delights. Drinking the Dhamma. How do we do that? So taking it in, consuming the truth of our life, however we experience it moment to moment. We drink it in through sitting and walking and hearing the teachings, taking the precepts, practicing the precepts. So we're uh, ingesting um, a wholesome way of being in the world, we're understanding, in a sense, how to do that. Drinking the Dhamma, refreshed by the Dhamma. There's something about the fruit that Dhamma yields that is uplifting and changes something. Some I think of feeling refreshed after I, uh, I take a shower, swim in a lake, or, or jump in the ocean. There's a sense of something being washed away, being, being clean, cleansed of something. If this image works for you, uh, before we drink in the Dharma, before we're refreshed by it, there's a kind of dirtiness, not, not, um, it's not that there's anything wrong or bad, it's more, there's a dirtiness or there's a cloudiness, uh, there's a dullness of mind, there's a dullness of heart. Uh, the brightness of the Dhamma uh, is hidden. Uh, so we get refreshed, we get, we get woken up, Some, something brightens. One sleeps at ease, so when the burdens that we carry are exhausted and we have put down all of the mental chores and done away with the analytical gymnastics, the mind really does uh, 
settle and relax. And I don't know about you, but there are occasions when that happens to the mind and sleep is deep. There are uh, other references to sleeping well in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, metta meditation, one of the fruits uh, is that we will uh, sleep and wake feeling happy. Drinking the Dhamma, refreshed by the Dhamma, one sleeps at ease with clear awareness and calm. So the Dhamma allows us to see clearly and to remain calm. In the Dhamma revealed by the Noble Ones, in the truth, uh, in this clear seeing, revealed by others who have woken up, the wise person always delights. So in wisdom, there's permission for delight. Or we might read uh, in this that delight or joy comes naturally with wisdom. And we might think about wisdom as having a, uh, an exclusively disciplined uh, quality to it. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some effort, isn't it? And, and, and we... You know, we have a schedule that asks us to cultivate will and discipline, and you're bumping up against that at the end of day one. And it takes effort, doesn't it? I mean, even here on our first day, I imagine that there were times during the day when you wanted to sleep or skip out on meditation or... watch TV or check your email or whatever, you know, we're, we're training ourselves to do something so different. It takes effort and time and we've put four days of our life aside in order to drink in this Dharma. But it doesn't have to be so heavy, actually. It doesn't have to be so difficult. There's, there's a question in here, and I, I tend to think of the, the Buddhist path and the nature of contemplative spirituality uh, as a life of questions. <clears throat> and I think in a sense, as insight develops, there are really just more questions. So you could say then the Dharma is a series of disappointments one after the other in that we hope that what we're learning and discovering will put an end to the need for all this effort. But it won't because there are more questions. What is helpful to know, I think, is that the, the quality of those questions get richer and richer and more subtle and more nuanced and they begin to hold us which is to say they give our life a unique kind of purpose and meaning that I don't, I, don't, I don't think there are many ways of finding outside of the contemplative path. So we start to be excited about these questions. We, we come, become quite interested. There's a Zen teacher who said, 
uh, <clears throat> something to the extent of I look forward to the next suffering or um, so in this path we're not looking for the easy way out and yet we are learning to relax somehow even if it doesn't feel like that all the time The practice that we're doing, predominantly insight meditation, we could say leads us from not knowing to knowing. So there are all kinds of things that we don't know, and it's talked about in different ways in the Buddhist teachings. We, we actually just don't know ourselves very well. We don't always know what we want. We don't always know where we're going. If we know where we're going, we don't always know how to get there. We don't know, however cryptic or sensible this is to your ears, we don't know our true nature. In a sense, we, we just don't know how we work. We don't know how we operate. To some extent, we know how we operate. But we don't know how we operate well enough to really be liberated from the first noble truth, dukkha. And we really don't know our well enough, ourselves well enough to be contented, deeply contented, as I often uh, recite in metta practice. We don't know the truth of anicca, impermanence, inconstancy. We do know it intellectually. Very few people argue this Buddhist teaching that all things change. But when they change, particularly relationships, financial status, health, friendships, status, recognition. When these things change or even disappear altogether, we find ourselves in a fair amount, often in a fair amount of distress. And so when we say we don't understand a Nietzsche fully, we mean that we haven't fully integrated or, or embodied the truth of it so deeply that we're free even around those truly difficult life circumstances. Is that even possible? The, the Dharma does at, invite us to ask that question, is that even possible? In the most optimistic, uh, faithful response is yes. This would be uh, one way of talking about how we would recognize an awakened being. an ability to move with the natural order of things, so one is, one is highly resilient, probably more resilient than, than we often find we're capable of. But we don't have this uh, skill, this is a skill that can be learned, we don't have this skill fully intact 
And so we come to practice with some, uh, I think a fair amount of humility. I'm not saying that ego and arrogance don't have a place in the Dharma. They're, they're there uh, quite a lot. Uh, in disguise, in places we hope they wouldn't be, sometimes up here, sitting next to the bell. Um, but as a general principle, um, we come to the practice with a fair amount of humility, and if we don't, we will find, if we sit long enough, we will touch the core of our own suffering, and we don't have much of a choice but to open to it if we want freedom, and so there's a humility that comes. There's also uh, a sweet kind of humility that has confidence built into it. Those seem to not always go together, but there's a humble confidence, if you will, humble hyphen confidence, where in our willingness to be real and true and transparent, something is transformed and there's a confidence that comes through by way of permission to be just who we are. So we, we, we in a sense, we become proud of our humanity, not prideful, uh, but just settled in who and what we inherently are. <clears throat> the Buddha invites us to um, become familiar with uh, what is uh, termed the Four Noble Truths, the, really the central teaching and uh, we hear it often, we read it, it'll be the, you know, the Four Noble Truths might be the first chapter of a, a book on Buddha Dharma. A lot of the Dharma talks you've listened to online or heard at your Dharma Center uh, talk about the, the Noble Truths. So, again, we know that, we know the teaching And yet the, the, the Buddha is asking, always asking for a deeper knowing. And so we're invited by saying yes to this practice tradition to engage and reflect on the possibility of understanding the Four Noble Truths, embodying the wisdom contained within them, and transforming them into a sound set of skills that we can use in very practical ways in our lives. So what is, in a sense, the philosophical foundation or launching point uh, shows up as an embodied set of skills as wisdom. We recognize it in how we make decisions, how we relate to the changing world around us, how we act, how we behave, how we think, how we talk, how we move our body in relationship to the world and people around us. The first noble truth is dukkha. This says that life is 
that life in its diversity invariably includes distress, discontent, longing, restlessness, and a whole host of, uh, at least at the beginning of the path, intolerable experiences. And the Buddha wanted us to just be clear, to be willing to look at this part of ourselves. And I think this is particularly important uh, in our culture, which is largely repressive and where behaving like we have it figured out is rewarded uh, in relationship, in the workplace. And so we learn at a very young age uh, to try to convey competence and well-being and intelligence and strength. In fear and caution and concern and disappointment and anxiousness, unhappiness, depression are learned to be things that we should avoid at all costs. And uh, at the very least, don't expose the truth of them within yourself to other people, because then the whole situation will get worse somehow. What I find actually is that if you have the company of good people and you can let yourself be a dynamic human being, you actually get better just by being honest and you create radical safety and trust uh, within community and people are liberated uh, to be free by way of not having to hide anymore. So we uh, come together, for example, uh, as Dharma practitioners, at least in, in Boston on, on Thursday evenings, and uh, you know, we talk about what's real in a sense, to use very plain language. It's one of the ways I think that we wake up. <clears throat> So that's dukkha, the first noble truth, dissatisfaction, discontent. And then the second noble truth is tanha. Tanha. This uh, translates as thirst, but we often, we often describe tanha as uh, craving, attachment. We can include aversion in this category. So there's a cause. And if there's a cause, we're already closer to finding a resolution. But we have to test the Buddha. The Buddha would have appreciated me saying that, I think. He, he, this is all an experiment. It's quite, uh, I don't know if scientific or clinical are the right words, but it's quite pragmatic, experiential, what we're doing. We're not, we're not asked to buy into any theories. And, and this is one of the, some of you have heard me say this before, this is one of the reason, reasons why at the beginning I was, I was really able to take the Dharma quite seriously as a meditation tradition, as a spiritual practice, 
and I, I tend to, uh, I always have had even almost a religious bent. I really wanted the whole thing. I wanted the chanting and the, the meditation center and the statues and the, the simple environment and uh, uh, really longed to be a monk in my, my 20s. And, So while I might have been inclined from a certain part of myself to adopt a theory that sounded good, when I heard that I didn't have to adopt any theories until I fully uh, tested them myself, uh, I felt like I could really engage. I could spend some time. No one was going to pull anything over on me if I could have the final say, in a sense. That gave me some faith. So the idea is that if we can understand what tanha really means, and we can learn to recognize it in the present moment, we can avoid suffering. We can avoid dukkha. So this is a pretty grand teaching, right? You, you hear how fantastic and optimistic this teaching is. There's a reason why it gets repeated over and over and over again. So we could say that what we're doing on retreat this weekend is trying to become intimate with this tanha. Can we find it? Can we locate it? Can we feel it? Can we... Can we identify it? Are we willing to look closely enough to see the ways that we're rejecting who we are? Can we uh, see the ways we're rejecting the environment around us? Because that's what tanha is. It's a, it's a rejection. Uh, it's a rejection of the present moment, fundamentally. And it's it's, it's a great disappointment and uh, derailing on the spiritual path to reject the present moment because ultimately it's the place where we're at the deepest peace and it's the place where insight arises most naturally. So we could almost say that the level of insight and understanding or wisdom we have is proportionate to how often we've stepped foot in the present moment. Because we really do see clearly when we stop pushing and pulling at experience. Right? And the mind really, really relaxes. There's a great calming So there's, 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 a, there's a couple different uh, ways that Tanha is described. We have 
we have the attachment to becoming, to becoming something, to becoming someone. This is a kind of uh, uplifting and creating and maintenance of the sense of self. We want to, of course, be something that we're not. Even just wanting to be happier, more free, even just wanting the things that I've been talking about since I, I started sharing these ideas with you, when that is not held correctly, we're subject to this wanting to become, which perpetuates dukkha. Um, so I, I like to work with imagery, and I like to put things in categories and boxes, and and uh, talk about how the boxes and categories overlap. And <clears throat> this craving to become, this this type of tanha. Um, it's it's like we want to go somewhere. We want to go over there, and like over by the air conditioner. And until we get to the air conditioner, we're not happy. And worse, often as we try to get to the air conditioner, we're making ourselves more unhappy or more confused. We get halfway to the air conditioner and we're thinking, "Ugh, I don't even know if I want to go to the air conditioner anymore." Because it's been so painful to get from here to halfway to the air conditioner. You know, maybe I'll go to the tall cactus instead, right? So craving to become um, is a particular kind of moving away from the present moment. We don't like what's happening in the present moment, so we want to go somewhere else. that um, somebody or person, that, that me, that, is, that we become, will somehow be free of whatever burdens we individually carry. Right? So we're hopeful for that. And it also makes us anxious, actually. What if we don't get it? And then there's the craving, we could say, of non-becoming. Um, the very far end of the craving to non-become would be to eliminate the mind and body completely so that you don't have to feel your own experience or the world around you anymore. So that's the, the far extreme. Uh, on the, the beginning of this uh, spectrum of non-becoming, um, there's the ordinary daily aversions and resistances and not wanting. Um, It's just, a, it's just a shift of emphasis. I don't want to be me. This me is intolerable. And I want to do away with that. And, you know, we, we may have heard or read about so many uh, mendicants and yogis in the early times of the Buddha who th thought that the body was the problem. The body was the cause of suffering. And if they could get rid of the body, they would be liberated. And they did these outlandish ascetic practices and uh, you know, grueling yogic rituals, starved themselves. The Buddha almost starved himself, almost died. As he tried those different, those different kinds of practices that would have been popular at the time. 
So we, we you know, the, that will cross the minds of humans sometimes, right? Why don't we just put an end to the project instead? And then there's the craving for sensual desire, which is bombarding uh, the possibility of great peace all the time. I eat something that I enjoy tonight, for example. Uh, if you notice, there was a there was like two or three pots on the counter, and the last one said for Chris, which brought up a lot of self-consciousness for me. I, I don't want to be the teacher who has their own crock pot <laughs> at the retreat. And I, 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 meant to, I meant in my opening announcements on Friday night to let you know that I would sometimes either be cooking myself or cooking food that you're not eating or maybe someone would be, um, the, the, the cooks have graciously uh, um, offered, uh, they went in the fridge and got some of my food and cooked it for me, but... Um, this is all to say that uh, because of my health condition, uh, I have a very restricted diet and I have to eat certain foods. Um, but to get back to the point, um, she told me that she was going to prepare some leftover vegetables for me that we had uh, already and put them in that little crock pot and that she had a half a sweet potato, what I wanted. And I love sweet potatoes. I even brought three sweet potatoes to retreat with me. <clears throat> I'm actually attached. I actually, this is, you know, I can joke around about it, but... Uh, it actually brings up a lot for me because I used to enjoy eating. And um, I, there's very little pleasure in eating now as I try to get healthy. So I, I eat to, to try to get well and I eat to... Um, to keep the body operating, but there's, there's very little joy in it. Uh, but I like sweet potatoes. And um, so I travel with them and I bake them with cinnamon and oil. And that's how I get the experience of something sweet. So she said, um, I have a half a sweet potato. Would you like it? And I said, yeah, that's great. And so she, she made me half a sweet potato with the leftover kale. And I was sitting outside with Leah and we were having dinner and I noticed the mind getting really graspy as the, the count of sweet potatoes got lower and lower, you know, and at a certain point there were like two and a half little sweet potatoes and, you know, the joy of eating is two and a half sweet potatoes away. Um, so this is, this is craving of sentiment, it's happening in our life all the time. Um, when I get to the bottom of, of a cup of tea, I feel it. When a really good song ends, and then a bad song comes on the radio, there's just a little bit of dukkha. When the weather is just sweet, and then it's shit, you know, it gets too hot or too cold, or uh, sometimes people will complain about the rain. I really love the rain. I'll actually complain if it gets too hot. You know, everyone, it's like, oh, the sun's coming out. I feel like the rain allows me an excuse to stay inside and meditate or read Dharma books or something. If the sun's out, I should probably go for a walk. Or I should probably do something. <laughs> so we want pleasant sights. We want pleasant sounds. We want pleasant feelings. And we chase them. We spend much of our life chasing them. 
So that is craving for sense pleasure. We want to feel good, right? The third noble truth, this is where the good news comes in. The third noble truth is cessation or nirodha. And that's the alleviation or the reduction of this dukkha that we're um, trying to understand how to resolve. And uh, this means that we've learned something about craving. We've put something down in a sense. Um, And the Buddha is saying that this is possible. The Buddha is saying this is possible. So there's a diagnosis, in a sense, and that is dukkha, right? And there is a cause, that is tanha, and there's a prognosis, that is cessation. And there's a prescription. There is a way to do this. And that's the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. And that's the development of wisdom, the development of meditation, and the development of ethical conduct, living in a world, living in the world in a way that is conducive to harmony, so that your actions result in increasingly wholesome and healthy mind states and your emotional and mental states and actions in the world facilitate well-being and harmony for other people and now there's a natural feedback loop. So you're moving in a wiser world that you've contributed to. So this is an interdependent model. Those are the Four Noble Truths, and there's something that you can watch for in terms of your own particular identification with the Buddhist teaching. Some people enter and they really orient themselves around dukkha. They they hear the dukkha teachings and they... The dukkha teachings can really validate someone's experience because And I didn't say this before, but the Buddha was saying, this is not personal, this is not your fault. There are things you can learn to do differently, so there's less dukkha. But boy, as a human being, did you come into a situation um, wrought with inherent difficulty. This is going to be a hard path. But some of us hear the dukkha teachings and they resonate and they normalize something whether what they're normalizing is public or private. And then we set out on this path and we get even better at noticing dukkha. And this group of people can fail to connect in with cessation. Right? We can, uh, this is part of my story and you may have heard this in other talks that I <clears throat> It took a long time before I was able to utilize the path 
to find the lighter, more buoyant mind states. I was getting good at tracking dukkha. And so we need to learn how to pick the fruit of the Dharma. We need to learn how to connect in with cessation so that uh, dukkha is not the only theory that's become embodied, but cessation is a theory that has become embodied. Sometimes, sometimes. Because when we have these moments of cessation and we learn to pause and rest there and take stock, it shifts something. We have a different kind of faith, we, different, we have a different kind of competence, and we can more easily, going forward, resist those urges to become or to not become. We, out of clear seeing and discrimination, were less subject to buy into all of those sense indulgences, right? We come to know that all the ways, many, not all, we come to know that many of the ways that we chase, seek happiness to restore something that feels flawed are unsuccessful. And just as soon as we start to do this, we're looking around for what was flawed and we can't find it. There's an inherent sense of self-worth that's starting to emerge. Okay, and so we have, now we have this positive feedback loop. So, you, you know, just check it out. Just see if, if, if this is you at all. You know, like sometimes, and it's been happening quite a bit lately for me, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll find myself in a situation and I'll say, geez, I'm actually attached to my suffering. You know, like it's, there are certain ways that dukkha shows up in my life that, you know, it's like they become part of my personality. And I'm, I'm even though I, for all intents and purposes, rather do away with them, uh, I'm sort of attached. We're not supposed to be attached to dukkha, um, but we can be. I'm an aversive type. This is probably another talk, so I won't, I won't go too far in this direction, but I can walk in to a beautiful room, beautiful art, temperatures right, well-built, well-designed. It could be music on that's really enjoyable, healthy food that tastes good. And I'll find the one thing in that room that's out of place or that I don't like. So there's something, there's something in me that's been trained to notice the world in that way, right? And I and and am letting you into a, a present day personal practice. This is something that I'm working with. We talk about practices as being on the meditation cushion, but we, we need to we need to merge 
what's happening on the cushion with everything we do. And I'm finding a steep learning curve, quite a steep learning curve with um, how to correct this. But but what and and I think I'm I think I'm I think I'm starting to get there because I'm I'm both seeing it and I'm kind of disgusted. I'm like, oh, I did it again. You know, like I'll call my partner and she'll say, hey, how you doing? In about you know five minutes into the conversation, I'll realize that I just listed three or four things that weren't going well. That I lead and she and I haven't even talk, talked about it, um, but I I trust that she notices that I and mean, she's quite astute in this way, and I'm sure she's aware of that, you know, and I wonder how that colors her world. I wonder how that colors our relationship. And then, so, so, so we, can, we can almost be attached or cling to or orient ourselves toward the first noble truth, and then some people will, will really preoccupy themselves with the, with, the, with the third noble truth and they hear the teachings and they, I want to wake up. And there's this clingy, graspy um, movement towards cessation. And maybe also because one is over-identified with cessation, uh, one has a well-constructed persona that suffering is actually not much, the dukkha is actually not much of a problem. Um, and there's likely been, as of yet, um, an inability to fully go through the door of dukkha. Now, the, the, the Buddhist path doesn't, and these teachings don't often work well in a linear way, but I think this is one model where the Buddha said, there's a door to go through, and it's the dukkha door, and let's start there, right? Because where there's dukkha, uh, we could say we're stuck. We would say the mind has uh, met its own learning curve. So I think, in part, Maturity on the path is expressed in a clarity and honesty with regard to the presence of dukkha and some humility, you know, in my own sort of contemporary interpretation of this and, uh, you know, just with regard to what I advocate for, there's some humanness. The Arahant ideal is not uh, a Halloween costume that we forget to take off and... um, we pretend we're wearing it every day. And there's been some, there's some development, there's some growth. So we're able to speak to the ways we've learned and grown and uh, alleviated some of our dukkha. So it's kind of a balanced, this practice is working. I have faith. Um, so I'm going to practice more. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to invite you to the meditation center. I have, um, I'm investing in, the, I'm investing more and more out of a place of recognition of cessation. Ajahn Amara says, trust in awareness. 
trust and awareness in being awake rather than in transient and unstable conditions. What he's saying is relate to life as if anicca were the truth of freedom even before you know it's the truth of freedom. Anicca, again, is impermanence. Relate to life as if impermanence were your key to freedom even before you know it's the key to freedom. Meaning only embrace with full contact, if you will, present moment experience, pleasant or unpleasant. This approach and attitude and ultimately skill is what takes the power out of tanha, craving, the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha. And so now we have, this, we have this bridge, in a sense, between the Four Noble Truths and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. We, we see that they start to come together. Okay. The first foundation of mindfulness, which I talked quite a bit about this morning, is body. Okay. The, the foundations of mindfulness... Um, are sometimes called establishments. They're the places we can establish or the ways we can establish mindfulness. Sometimes they're referred to as pastures. Um, they're categories, if you will, of experience. They're ways of organizing mental and physical phenomena, things that happen to us. So in the second foundation or establishment of mindfulness, the things that happen to us are pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences, and neutral experiences. And that's all. The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, in a sense, say nothing else is going on. Now what happens is when pleasant experiences occur, we want to keep them and hold on to them. Or we, and this will happen, particularly on meditation retreat, we will find some peace and well-being. And then we lose it right away because we're trying to, we're working too hard to think about how it happens so that we can reproduce it in the future. And it's like, what's the, that cliche, sand in the palm of your hand? Like, it's just, where to go? You know, so fast. And then if it happens again, you might try to hold even tighter. So it might last even shorter. So we really have to let everything go, to use the, the grand modern-day spiritual cliche, just let it go. You know, people saying that all the time. 
It's a bad teaching because there's no technique. There's no instruction. Not letting go means not adding anything to the experience you're having. It means don't add tanha. That's what letting go means. It means don't add tanha. Don't add craving to the natural, impermanent, inevitable flow of life which moves between pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So the, the, the teachings are not saying that we should be using these texts in the notes, in the meditation practice, in the precepts, in the form of the schedule to somehow master this second foundation called Vedana by way of eliminating eventually the neutral experiences and the unpleasant experiences so that we can surround ourselves with pleasant experiences. That's not the teaching. The teaching is saying, let's observe pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral as if they all have the same value. And we, we, we get rid of right or wrong or good and bad. And then we allow ourselves permission to be with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences without wanting to go over to the air conditioner or wanting to go over to the cactus or completely getting rid of this person who can't decide whether they want to go there or there. So life touches us in hard and in joyful ways. And life moves through us with some economy, actually, some efficiency. Um, in plain language, we move on. I don't want to belittle how hard it is to move on from some of the difficulties that I I may have mentioned at the beginning of the talk, or maybe even it was earlier today. I, I don't even remember, but uh, significant changes in work, finance, relationship, health, loss of a loved one, very, very difficult. So I want to be careful with my language. And with that preface in place, so that you know that um, we should all remain sensitive to how much we can be challenged by those kinds of experiences. Let it go. Um, don't ask nature to be something it can't, don't ask natural processes that won't stop to stop. Things are always going to change. <clears throat> the next moment is going to be different. And if retreat is set up to do something really, really well for us, it's to point this out. How many times has your 
mental state shifted or changed? How many times has the experience you're having in your physical body changed in one day? How many things have you liked from the food to the temperature to the to the changing leaves and how many things have you disliked from the food to the the bed is too soft or too hard or you're glad that you have the roommates you have or you're disappointed that you even have roommates I mean, the, the territory is vast. So we're encouraged to move on, in a sense, move on to the next moment, you know, move on to the next moment. So, attributed to the Buddha, here, at the time of having a pleasant feeling, one is aware of it and knows of oneself, I am having a pleasant feeling. At the time of having an unpleasant feeling, one is aware of it and knows of oneself, I am having an unpleasant feeling. At the time of having a neutral feeling, one is aware of it and knows of oneself. I am having a neutral feeling. And I'll close with um, passage from Bhikkhu Analyo. Contemplation of feelings thus requires recognizing the effective tone of present moment experience. Before the arisen feeling leads to mental reactions and elaborations. Such reactions and elaborations tend to be influential, excuse me, tend to be influenced by the initial effective input of how one feels. From a practical perspective, this aspect of contemplation of feeling requires that one does not get carried away by the individual content of felt experience, and instead directs awareness to the general character of experience in terms of its three affective tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral.
also by Bhikkhu Analyo. Contemplation of feeling thus enables one to become aware of the conditioned genesis of dukkha right in the present moment. Feelings are like uninvited guests. By not reacting to them, one can avoid being shot by a second arrow. Okay, let's uh, sit together for maybe just a moment or two.